0: So some of you are probably asking a question, so when is this series on the book of Mark going to be over? That's been, uh, <laughs> wait, just wait. Yes, yeah, so I came on board as the interim uh, preaching pastor back in the middle of last April, started this series on Mark uh, at the beginning of May, so today is the second to the last message from the book of Mark, imagine that. So the waiting is almost over, uh, two weeks from now, um, the, the second week of March, we're going to complete the, uh, the series and I talked last week that one of the challenges that we were in is the, the book of Mark kind of was really quick for a long time. And then it kind of came to a screeching halt from a timeline perspective. And the last several chapters really take place in the last few days of Jesus' life. And even now, uh, towards the end, it's the last few hours of Jesus' life. And if we recall last week, I remember getting up here and saying this was a a tough place because I had spent the entire week just so engulfed in the the passages that dealt with Jesus' anguish and and betrayal and denial. And living in that place just kind of rips you apart because you realize you're as much to blame for what happened to Jesus as, as the people back then. You know, I've denied Jesus. I've betrayed Jesus. And You you live there, and and we want to live with one foot in that world as a reminder of why Jesus came and why he did what he did. But we want to live in the hope of of the resurrection. But when we read the book of Mark, it takes us a while to get to that place. But but we know the whole story because we have 2,000 years of history. We have all of Scripture to, to tell us about that. We sing amazing songs about glory, about victory. But in the middle of the text... It's about pain and anguish and what Jesus is going through. And if we refresh our minds, if you, if you weren't here last week, uh, we went through a lot of, of a very long passage with lots of information and lots of details where we had Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And we, we really saw that there were two Gethsemanes. We had the Gethsemane of Jesus and we had the Gethsemane of the disciples, and in the Gethsemane of Jesus, through prayer and, and deep connection with God, even in the midst of his anguish and turmoil and, and wanting this cup to pass from him, God, if there's any other way, that would be great, but not my will, but yours. Right? And, and through that process, he steeled himself for what was to come. The disciples, on the other hand, were, were told to watch and to pray right? and to, to be ready. They had been told that before. Be prepared for whatever can happen, but, but they fell asleep. And so in their Gethsemane, they were, they were found wanting. They, they were left faithless and powerless. And so when really they were on trial, they, they failed. And then we had the story that they all left Jesus at that time. Jesus was arrested and he was taken to the, the home of the high priest. But at the same time, a trial was going on in the courtyard with Peter. And Peter was actually to the place in his denial that, that he was blasphemous and in denying, knowing anything about God and The very last time that we see Peter in the book of Mark was the end of last week's passage. It says, after he realized he had denied Jesus, just as Jesus had said, he broke down and wept. It is this this horrific place. Which brings us to our our passage today. And once again, it's a pretty lengthy passage with lots of things going on in it. related to Jesus working his way methodically to the cross. And there are two things I want us to keep in mind as we look at this passage today. One is, uh, have in mind for yourself, every action movie you've ever seen. So, so in my day and age growing up, this would be Rambo. This would be Die Hard. This would be Commando. This would be any movie that the advertisement starts with, in a world, <laughs> right? In a world where right is wrong and wrong is right. We're the first or last, and the last or first. And to be the greatest, you must be the least, you know. It doesn't sound right for me. I, my, I don't have that voice, right, that guy in a world. I sound like a cartoon character, and in a world just doesn't, just doesn't quite cut it. But what happens in all of those stories, you, you usually have one person, right? One person, and, and something of some deep injustice has happened, and, and they're being tormented, they're being ridiculed, they're being chased, they're being run down, and, and they're backed into a corner, right? But at one point in the movie... They step out, right? And they wreak havoc. And this one person writes all the wrongs that have done against them. And it's usually through extreme violence. And there's explosions and gunshots and fighting and blood, right? And, but this person finally wins. And we stand up and cheer. We'll see if we see that in this passage. It's different than every movie we've seen. That's an action movie. The other thing to keep in mind is a, a very pivotal moment earlier in the book of Mark. <clears throat> When Jesus was walking down the road and his disciples were with him, and, and James and John, two of the closer disciples, came up to Jesus and said, hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And, and they said, in your glory, can, can we sit at your right and at your left? In other words, we, we sense something going on. And you've talked about this kingdom, and you've, you've taught us differently what the kingdom of God is like. In that day, can we have positions of status and power? Can we be in charge of stuff? And Jesus looked at them and basically said, You don't know what you're asking. He said, Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And we understood those two phrases to be talking about Can you share my destiny? Can you, can you enter with me into my suffering and calamity? And they said, We can. And he says, you-, you can't. He says, You will drink that cup. You will be baptized with that baptism. But, but who's on my left and my right is not for me to determine. And then it said the other disciples were frustrated with James and John because basically those two beat them to the punch, right? They all wanted status. And Jesus says, you know that the Gentiles, the, the ones who, whose oppression you live under right now, they, they lord it over people. They control people's life, but, but not so with you. In other words, not so with the way this kingdom is I am talking about. Because if you really want to be great, you have to be last. If you really want to live the kingdom, you have to humble yourself. And he said, because even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He says, you've lived under this system. You know this is how it works. This is how people in authority lord it over everybody, but that's not the way it works in my kingdom. So keep those two things in mind as we go through our passage today. i like to say it's a lengthy passage. We're going to kind of cut it in in half and talk about the the half separately. So basically, starting at the beginning of uh, chapter 15, it says, very early in the morning. This is after the sham of a trial, right? The chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plan. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, "Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of." But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from whom the people requested. A, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate, "Want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why him? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released uh, Barabbas to them. He, he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out crucify him i'm gonna stop right there we alluded to it a little bit last week and when jesus was in this basically kangaroo court before the religious leaders that they basically conjured up their predetermined outcome and they got to the place by asking him questions they were going to charge him with blasphemy right blasphemy against god blasphemy against the religious system but but they couldn't carry out a death sentence they had, did not have that authority and, and the Roman government is not going to put somebody to death for a religious issue. And so they had to conjure up something. And, and so when they went to Pilate, and we have to understand Pilate was not a, a huge great leader. He, he was nothing like Caesar. He, he was nothing like the Herods. He, he was really what we would term today a, a landowner. He was, he was wealthy. He was, in another era, he'd be referred to as like a knight, right? He had local jurisdiction over a province, and he was, he was wealthy, he had status, he lived in high society, and the way the Roman government worked is these people who could be over these little areas, a governor of a small location, had jurisdiction ultimately for, for whatever happened to people who weren't Roman citizens. There was no formalized legal code that said, hey, if somebody brings you this kind of situation, here's what you can do. Was, his job was really to maintain the peace, maintain the order. Maintain control over his things, because if things, you know, spiral out of control, he's going to get in trouble with his superiors, right? What's what's wrong with your area, Pilate? Pilate was also known to be somebody who had a, a deep disaffection or distaste or hatred for the Jewish people. But, but the religious leaders know that they, they would get a certain amount of leeway in the culture if they keep control of their own people. And so uh, this was probably not an uncommon practice to go to pilot to have things solved. Right? And it talks about this happened at, early in the morning. So they had been overnight having this kangaroo court. They take to pilot early in the morning. And if you're a person whose real role in life is a landowner and part of high society, you only deal with these legal things when you have to. And so if you can do those early in the morning, you get them out of the way, and then you go about your business for the rest of the day. And so they, they brought Jesus to Pilate, and, and it says in here that Pilate knew that the high priests and religious leaders were doing this for their own good, right? They, they were, and so he says, so are you the king of Jews? And it's interesting, because the, the Greek uh, straight language in here, when Jesus' responds, isn't so much, it is as you say, as this great declaration, it's really like, whatever you say. Well, do you hear all these accusations they're making against you? Because they had, you know, they had they'd conjured up these things to get him in trouble, and Jesus remained quiet, which was according to Scripture, too, in Isaiah, that he never said a word, silent, in the midst of his accusers. And Pilate, Pilate shows this, this lack of backbone. Right? But he turns to the people and, well, do you want me to turn over The king of the Jews, right? There was this tradition they had, and and this is, once again, uh, a ruler of this kind of little province, could do whatever they wanted, and so it says the the history, the tradition was, hey, at certain times of year, if you want to appease the community, you'll release somebody they want released, right? And and so you want me to release the one you call the king of the Jews? No, we want Barabbas, who who, who says he was a murderer. He had had committed murder. He was part of the insurrection, part of the uprising, and, and we don't know what that is. It doesn't say. Some uprising somewhere with some religious zealots, some of some the Jewish community were zealots who desperately wanted to be the ones to, to force their way violently out of the oppression. Right? He said, release Barabbas. What should we do with Jesus? Crucify him. What, so what should I do? And then he says he gave his answer because he wanted to satisfy the crowd. I thought that the, the religious leaders were doing this just kind of for their own well-being, to save their own hides. Because they didn't want this guy. But, but he, just to satisfy the crowd, anybody who asks that kind of question, so what should I do? And when you say the answer, the guards, the ones whose job it was to crucify people. And we talked before, um, back in the passage when it talked about Jesus saying that whoever wants to follow me, right, must take up a cross and follow me. It went to great length that, that everybody in that culture, and, and, and even more so Mark's audience in, in the 60s AD who were Roman citizens, they, they would have understood what that meant. That wasn't a picture right then of Jesus' cross. It was crucifixion, people who carry their cross through the street. Crucifixion, we talked about, was a very common practice. Crucifixion was something they would have seen a lot in their lives. Why? Because the Romans had perfected this way of not just executing people. This was not just a way to end a criminal thing. And we're going to execute a person for the crime they committed. It was also basically like a billboard that yelled out loud and clear who was in charge. And if you don't follow what we do, this could happen to you. So it was seen as a deterrent. And so everybody had seen people be crucified. And so you'll notice in, in all the gospels, but in Mark particular, he, he doesn't really go into details about what a crucifixion is. Why? Because they all knew. And when it says, "They led him out to be crucified," they could all picture that in their head. That they, they knew what this meant. And so you had this, this group of, of the soldiers that led him away to the, to the palace, and they, they called the whole company of soldiers, which would have been about 600, and they, they put a robe on him, and they, they made fun of him, and they spit on him, and they hit him, and they put a crown of thorns on him. These were people, this is what they did for their job. They killed people, and they did it in a way that made everybody notice. These trials were held in public. People saw it. They knew what was going on. And it yelled loud and clear, who is in charge? Who lords it over you? And we hear that voice of Jesus saying, not so with you. Whoever be first has to be last. Whoever be greatest must be the least. I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And we see this amazing picture of this exchange with Barabbas. And can you imagine being Barabbas' shoes? It's like, I I murdered somebody. I'm part of the uprising, and there's probably this this level of relief that that I'm not going to die. I was ready to to be killed with these other guys, and and I'm not now, but this guy is going in my place. And and how did he wrestle through that in his life? And that's an amazing picture of, of all of our lives. When I look at this section of our passage, it's easy to identify with the different characters. Because as we've seen in Mark, and especially in this scene of, of moving towards here and moving to the crucifixion, and then, and then our final uh, scene after the resurrection, it's not so much a picture of, he doesn't really paint a picture of what is the cross like, but he, it's almost like looking from the cross to all the people that are involved. We have the religious leaders and Pilate and the soldiers and Peter and the disciples and we, how were they engaging this situation? It's a, it's a snapshot of all these things, all these details that are going on. And so we, we look at this saying and, and I can see myself. Right? I, I, can, I can see myself as one of the religious leaders who, who basically had a propensity for pride. Jesus was a threat to what they knew to be true. And so we gotta get rid of him. I, I can see myself having tendencies like Pilate. I, I can see my tendency to compromise, to make things go easily and go well and, and be like I think they should be. I, I, can, I can see myself like Barabbas, who, who doesn't really quite understand by what just happened, who is absolutely guilty, but, but somehow he's, he's been freed. Something happened that I think is more heroic. We want Barabbas. He stands up for us. Right? He was an insurrectionist. He was, he was on the side of Israel. He was a zealot. He, he was probably one that's only to go along with the crowd. And I, I can see that in myself, going along with the crowd. I, I remember once, I was just a little kid. It was horrible. I was in first grade. I remember this to the day I die. I was in first grade and, and on the playground at school, and all my friends went running by. It's like, whoo, wonder what they're doing. And so I joined in and went running by, and I joined in. And because I joined in, even though I didn't instigate it, I also joined in bending over and having the principal whack my bottom with a paddle because that's what they did in 1966. (laughs) But but I got caught up in the crowd for for calling for ridicule and violence. It's easy to get caught up in that. And I can see myself in that. In the soldier, I can see my capacity for cruelty. Cruelty. And I don't like that. They led him out to be crucified. As we move on in the passage at verse 21, it says a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charged against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Who will be on the right and on the left? Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing near heard this. They said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, He said, the loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of Like I said before, Mark doesn't go into details to describe a crucifixion because all of his audience and they they knew. They knew what it looked like. They knew what it meant. They knew how excruciating it was and how long it was and how painful it was. They they knew. And so Mark didn't didn't describe any for them. He said, "Next they did this. Next they did this." It's interesting because they it says that that Jesus wasn't carrying the, the cross piece himself, right? And, and usually the, the vertical piece would have been at the side already and they carry the cross piece. That's, that's what they did. And so when Jesus had the command to take up a cross, right, that's what it was. Enter into the world of those who are despised and shamed and ridiculed. Right, That's what it means to enter the kingdom. But it says here that Jesus wasn't carrying his. They needed somebody else to. And we can understand that he had been up a long time and he had been beaten and, and scourged. And just probably didn't have the strength. And so they, they grabbed this guy named Simon, who was from Cyrene. So this is a, a North African guy who was coming back into town. And they said, you carry it. And they forced him. And, and he picked it up and carried it. And boy, don't we hear that, that, that command to pick up a cross and follow me just resound in just that picture? Mark's odd seen that. And what's interesting is we don't know anything about this guy. But, but, but Mark, who we've seen throughout, it doesn't really give a lot of details. But here he gives an interesting one, Simon, the the father of Alexander and Rufus. And and we don't know who those people are, but the way Mark wrote wrote it knew who they were. We would have to assume that, otherwise, why would he give that detail? Paul does refer to a a man named Rufus in the book of Romans. So maybe it's the same person, but we don't know for certain. But I think this is a resounding thing of what happened that day. You know people. What happened that day, this man who assisted that process, you've been impacted because of that man. I think he's saying you know his sons. Rufus and Alexander. So something amazing happened through that interaction. And and then it says they, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which really would become like a narcotic. And so on one hand, we could say, well, maybe that's to kind of deaden things a little bit. But why would they have that kind of compassion after what they've done? My guess is they give him that. that that's to prolong it. It can be even more abusive, but he refused it. He didn't, he didn't take the wine. And, and, and if we're remembering everything else we've looked out in Mark, remember at the, at the Last Supper? A, and Jesus took the wine, and at the end of it, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. So we get that picture. He refused that. Why? Because it's not yet time. And so we, we see these pictures going on that are amazing. They divided up his clothes. More ridicule, right? We're going to add to the little bit of money we make by taking his stuff, and this is what we do. They, they crucified two other rebels next to him, probably from Patriots of Barabbas. And it says they even insulted Jesus. All he got was ridicule. Religious leaders saying, if you're so great, come down from the cross. If you're a Messiah, come down from the cross. Others saying, you said you destroyed the, the, the temple. Well, look what's happened to you. And, and an interesting thing, it talks about it at noon, darkness came for three hours. And, and that just kind of is a, almost an aside. Can you imagine? All of a sudden it's dark in the middle of the day. What happened in the dark? I think the image of darkness here is is an image of judgment. It's a sign of God's judging all the world in this moment. And at three in the afternoon, it says, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama lama sabachthani, which is an Aramaic uh, quoting of the first verse of Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, And this is... A phrase that has kind of tormented Christians since then. What exactly is he saying there? Should we understand his quote as he's just quoting that first verse? And so this is a statement of absolute rejection by God, absolute forsaking. He's nowhere to be seen in the picture. But but we know throughout the rest of Scripture, like in 2 Corinthians, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It, It wasn't separation because I believe fully. It wasn't just that verse. It wasn't I'm going to quote this one verse because Jesus, as we've seen throughout his life, was absolutely rooted in and inspired by and encouraged by and lived by Scripture. Psalm 22 starts out with this incredibly agonizing statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Psalm 22 ends with vindication and victory. I fully think Jesus knows the whole Psalm. And in this anguish where it was a forsakenness, where he felt all alone, he's calling out to God. And when we've seen other situations in his life, calling out to God or seeing God, we heard a voice from God. This is, you are my son whom I love, right? Or or later the disciples heard it, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. But... In the garden it was quiet, and here it's quiet. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? Yet yet I firmly believe he's speaking about the whole psalm because he knows this isn't the end, which is just like when he was in the trial last week when they said, are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the Messiah? And he says, it is. He knows the whole story. That doesn't take away from the excruciating loneliness sense of being forsaken. But Mark's audience would have known the whole psalm, too. And in the middle of their persecution, they can look at what happened to Jesus, and they know that Jesus said. People called at him again. Come down if you're so powerful. But he said he breathed his last, right? He breathed his last, he died. And at that moment, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And, and we had uh, another time at the very beginning of the book of Mark where, where Jesus was baptized, where he came out of the river and it said that ripped open. This torn idea, you can't fix something that's torn. It's not cut evenly, it's torn, so it's irreparable. It, this is the same word. He saw the, the curtain was torn, this curtain that separated the majority of the temple from the Holy of Holies. It was, it was ripped from top to bottom, it could not be repaired. Everything had changed. The view of the temple was well, that was the place that only some people could go. That was the, the holy of holies. Only some people could go into that. But when something is torn, that also means something comes out. So the, the whole view of how God works had been changed. He, he was not s- centered into space in the temple. No, he's on the loose. Everything changes. Nothing will ever be the same. And then what I think is maybe the, other than the resurrection, that the key verse in all of Mark as a conclusion to what we saw at the beginning, is it says, and when the centurion, centurion, who's a centurion? He would be a higher ranking soldier. Probably somebody who had worked his way up the ranks. Why? By being the most brutal. By, think of how many people you've crucified and punished and whipped and ridiculed a centurion, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. He didn't die like the hundreds or thousands of others I've seen died. Something was different. And if we go back to the very beginning of the book of Mark, how did Mark start out the book? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ. This is the good news of Jesus, the king of the kingdom. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And throughout this book, we've seen people not get it right. I mean, God, speaking, says, you are my son, right? We've seen that he's the son of God. And we heard, it. this is my son whom I loved. The disciples, they didn't understand it. We had Peter say to Jesus, you are the Christ. But we really saw that Peter didn't know what that meant. We have all these statements. This is the beginning of the gospel. And and, and what we understand is this isn't the beginning of the story and now we're at the end of the story. No, the, the whole thing he wrote is the beginning. And now this concluding mark in this place says this guy, the last person we would ever imagine would understand it, not the religious leaders, not the priests, not the close disciples, not the closer ones like Peter, James, and John, none of them got it. The absolute last person who would ever understand it said, you are the son of God. This is an amazing statement. And it also relates to us and convinces us that, that Jesus' full identity cannot be understood apart from his death. You, you can't say Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus did really good things. I love the way he loved people and cared for people. If that's all you see with Jesus and you don't believe that he died this way, you don't get that option. The reason this centurion came to understand he was the son of God was not, hey, I saw the miracles or heard the cool teaching. No, I saw how he died. And that changed everything. In fact, as the sermon title says, the cross says it all. That encapsulates everything. The cross then really, Mark really gives us Not thoughts about what his crucifixion looked like, but he gives us theology about what the cross is. And what we see, just a couple of things, is we learn the truth about changed. The cross tells us that things are never what they seem in the world. You know, these, these religious leaders thinking, we got it done, he's out of our way. We don't have to deal with him anymore, but we know the rest of the story, and that's not true. We see in this the pain of the human situation. What they would do to somebody who was true, and who was honest, who lived with integrity, and, and reached out and cared and loved everyone, and that person was put to death. And Mark's audience was living through persecution. They understood the pain of humanity. But, but we also learn that that wasn't the end. Right? We, we learn that this changes everything. This event changed all of history, and it changes us. If how Jesus died changed this centurion, it can change us. What a hope. So we've seen through the centurion really the, the answer to what Mark said at the beginning. That this is the Son of God, right? This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. When we we come back in two weeks, so after Matt is here next week in the candidating process, we'll conclude this book because then we'll get to discover that this truly is good news. We've seen the centurion confirm this is the Son of God. But it says this is the beginning of the good news. And so we're going to discover what does that mean? How does that play out? What does what this whole sermon about great beginnings mean? This is an amazing story. Amazing reality. Things that our words and our thoughts about it can never fully grasp. We're just like Pilate. We're just like Peter. We're just like the other disciples. We're just like the high priest. We're just like Barabbas. We're just like the crowd. Can we be like the centurion? who says, surely this man was the son of God. Can can that change our lives just as that changed history? Let's pray together.